welcome everyone. It's lovely to see some new faces as well. Um, my name is Matthew and we've been preaching on the love of God for the past while. Um, and last week I did, we looked at Luke 15. The, what is, um, where there are three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. So I'm going to give a brief summary and then we're going to look at... We're going to look at um, some more today, but I just want to pray for us. Father, thank you that your eye is on this moment. Your eye is on this time together, Father. It doesn't slip past you. It's not unnoticed. You aren't indifferent to it, Father. But when we draw near to worship and when we draw near to to praise you um, with hearts to please you, you delight in it, Father, and you are present. I just pray for that for each one of us that our our hearts and our souls may be quieted and brought into focus before you this morning, Father. In Jesus' name. I pray that you would help me to speak faithfully your word. And Holy Spirit, give us understanding and ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Last week, we looked at a lot of things. Do catch up. I'm not going to rehash everything. But some of the stuff that we looked at, um, and I like that we sang about the gospel this morning, because what this parable does, as I mentioned last week, Tim Keller likens it to, if the teachings of Jesus were a lake and you were on a boat, when you get to the prodigal son is, is the place where you can see right to the bottom. Sometimes Jesus' parables are hard for us to understand. Sometimes we don't know exactly what they mean. But the parable of the prodigal son goes really deep and it shows a full picture of the gospel. Um, I, I lean a little bit on the writings of Tim Keller. He wrote a book called The Prodigal God, which might sound strange to you if you feel like, or if you assume that prodigal means wayward. It doesn't. Uh, unfortunately, our interpretation of this parable has made us think that prodigal means wayward. But prodigal means to waste everything, like the younger brother did in the parable. We'll read it again. Or it means lavish generosity. It, it, it's abundance in, in scope. So that's why the, the love of the father, as we see, is prodigal in that way. So <clears throat> I think without further ado, I'm just gonna, I don't have any slides for you today, so you're going to have to listen and take some notes. Um, but we're going to read through Luke 15, and then we're going to get to some observations. Last week, okay, let's read first. Okay, the parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look these many years i've served you and i've never disobeyed your command Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So how many of you, like me, for the longest time, thought this parable was all about the younger brother? Okay, We can resonate with the younger brother. But really, the beauty of the full picture of the gospel that Jesus gives here is in the message to the older brother. It starts off that that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus, which, as we discussed last week, was a pattern of his ministry. Sinners were drawn to him. The Pharisees, the righteous and holy ones, had a big problem with this because they assumed Jesus was telling them what they wanted to hear. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't rebuking them. He wasn't instructing them in the ways of the law and instructing them in righteousness. And they grumbled continually against Jesus, whether it's for breaking the law, healing on the Sabbath, or hanging out with the sinners. They made big accusations against Jesus, saying he receives sinners and eats with them. And we discussed last week that to eat with someone is a meaningful association, even more so in those times. And so it's with the backdrop of that issue of the Pharisees, that the issue that they have with him, that Jesus tells these parables. And we won't go into the details now, do catch up, but 
the, the first two parables that he speaks of, of the sheep and the lost coin, he actually tries to make an appeal to the Pharisees to move on their hearts. And he did that all throughout his ministry. The Pharisees had a problem with the healing on a Sunday. And he said, come on, if your donkey fell into a well on a Sunday, are you telling me you would leave it there because you can't break the Sabbath? He, he was always in confrontation with the blindness of the Pharisees. And as we shared last week, that's often our blindness as well. Whether we're charismatic or not, we can have the same blind spot. Okay, we said last week, it's nothing to do with how rigid or formal your services are. It's all within the heart. And we often can have the same heart as the Pharisees. Bright and shiny on the outside. A whitewashed tomb, nice and neat. Inside, full of rotten bones, resentment, bitterness. And it's to this into which Jesus speaks. And in the first two parables, he appeals to their sense of compassion and value. He says, if you guys had a sheep, you'd have compassion on it. How much more a human made in the image of God? If you lost a coin, you'd see the value in, in pursuing that. How much more a sinner who comes back to God? And we saw that Jesus, Jesus goes out to seek them. Jesus' proximity to sinners was an earnest searching out of them to bring them back. And the thing, the, the reason Jesus, why this parable is so powerful is because Jesus tells, the story he tells next is actually to shatter our categories of how we think we get to God. Right? The Pharisees thought if you obey the law, then you are close to God. If you're circumcised and follow Jewish custom, then you are close to God. Now Jesus in his time on earth starts to demolish those sort of categories all throughout his life. And that's what brings him into such conflict with the Pharisees. I think it's Martin Luther who says that religion is the default setting of every human heart. And I, I agree with him. The more I look at my own heart, the more I love, I, I see that. Everyone, whether you're a Christian or whether you're Muslim or whether you're not even theistic, everyone understands those principles religious principles. I believe when Paul is talking in Colossians, saying to them, people are saying, don't touch, don't eat, don't taste, don't handle. He's saying, why would you return to those elementary principles of this world? And for me, I think he's hinting there at the fact that any human understands religion. And the problem is that when we look at religions, right, so Islam, you've got the five pillars of Islam, you do that, you shop with God. Judaism, you follow the law and the customs, you're okay. Even the Eastern, more loose, loosely sort of regulated in terms of like hard and fast regulations, it's the same thing. Your fasting and your meditation and everything gets you to God, gives you a good standing with God. And the unfortunate thing is we can do exactly the same thing with Christianity. We can take the gospel and also make it rules, regulations, a set of laws that if you just look like this, then you're good. The message of Jesus throughout is, I actually don't care what it looks like. He says, inside is where the stuff starts, and that's what I'm interested in. That's where I want to get to. You know, the Pharisees, the Pharisees evangelized. Jesus' one confrontation with them is to say, you guys cross land and sea and to the ends of the earth to gain a convert. And when he comes, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. So there's something, the Pharisees were committed to proselytizing or evangelizing according to the law. They did it. And they just got people in and they made them more like that. So it's, 
the gospel, Jesus' message is is other. Okay, it's not it's not true Christianity is not another one in the line, akin to Islam, Judaism, or whatever else you have. It is completely other. And we see this in Jesus' address to the older brothers. So again, the reason Jesus tells this parable is because the Pharisees have a problem with him. They have a problem with him receiving sinners. So in this, in this parable, Jesus actually redefines sin. Almost anyone can understand sin as breaking rules. Anyone understands that. Jesus actually redefines it. And the, the parallels in the two brothers are um, the, the older has got moral conformity on his side. He's, he's really righteous outwardly. The younger follows just his own interests, just his own pursuits, his self-discovery and his self-actualization. and his, He just goes his own way. The older brother is at the father's house and he believes he's got that on his side. The fact that he serves his father all these years, he's got that um, to help him. And you actually see it play out in so many ways um, in life. Typically, you can have those people who are sticklers for the rules, sticklers for the traditions and the commandments, who tend to think, oh, all those wild and frees, they are really the problem with the world. This world is just far too liberal, and it's just, everyone's just doing what they want. People need to be like us, and the world will be okay. Conversely, you have those people on the other side saying, all these bigots and uh, self-righteous, arrogant people, they are the real problem with the world. If they could just tear down all those conformities and all those outward things and actually just each, each man must figure out what's right for himself, then the world would come right. And you've got these playing out in, in, in different ways. The, the, the older brother types would say that it's not what I want, but what the community wants. And then the other ones on the other side will say, I decide. I decide how I find fulfillment. Both sides actually say that our way is the way and anyone who's not like us is against us. And a lot of Western culture is actually thought is actually functions like this. American politics is like exactly a pattern of that. It's weird that we know so much about American politics, but it's actually a lot of how the Western mind thinks. But it's important here. Christianity is not some middle ground. I want to emphasize that. Christianity is not a compromise between those two sides. It is something else completely. And the lostness of the younger brother is easily recognized. That's why we can often see, wow, the father's great to have mercy on him, but we can't, sometimes we maybe don't understand the, the role of the younger or the point that Jesus is making about the older. But the, the lostness of the younger is easily recognized. He's alienated from the father, but he comes back, he's invited to the father's love, and he goes in, and he's actually reconciled to the father. So the lover of prostitutes who's wasted his inheritance is reconciled to the father. The older brother, his lostness, his sin is actually harder to see because outwardly it looks all good. But he too is alienated. We see in his response to the father. When the brother comes home and they're feasting, he comes home, he's got a big issue with his brother being just taken in like that. The son doesn't even have to pay, doesn't even have to be punished. He's just taken in. The older brother's got a big problem with that. And he, 
the thing is the father comes out to him as well and says come into the feast let's celebrate but he stays outside so at the end of the parable you've actually got the wild and reckless reinstated and reconciled he's in the house oh the nice and cleanly morally righteous is actually still alienated he stays outside and he's still lost he's still not in on the father's love so why is this and we see clues in, the, in his words to the father and he says and it comes down to because i have never disobeyed you for the older brother it was not his sins that created a barrier between him and his father it was his confidence in his own record it was his confidence in his own righteousness that made a barrier between him and the father When he goes out and he doesn't come into the feast, he, he publicly shames his father and puts a vote of no confidence in his father. He says, I cannot believe you just took the younger in like that. From his standpoint, he's never disobeyed the father. And so the father owes him. The father owes him something. But it's the pride in his record, moral record and his righteousness that actually creates a barrier between them and he won't go in. He just won't submit that to the father he won't acknowledge that he won't let go of that and join the reconciliation that pride keeps him out paul says it like this when he's talking to the galatians galatians were a young church that was born not long uh jews came in christian jews who said okay it's all great and stuff that you're born again but you have to actually conform to the law you need to follow the mosaic requirements the whole letter of Galatians is Paul fighting against that thing. Okay, and it's very subtle. But Paul there builds his argument, and at the end he says, you are alienated from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You are severed from Christ. Those of you who would like to come to Jesus with your record of good deeds, he says, you couldn't be further from Jesus. You are alienated from Christ. Those of you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace, away from grace. And as a young man, I heard that line often from older brothers to younger brothers. Oh man, you have sinned so much, there is no more grace for you. You have sinned so much that you've fallen away from grace. There's nothing left. It's interesting that the, the actual use of that is against the older brothers. Those who would trust in their own righteousness. Paul is saying, you cannot get to Jesus. That will remain a barrier for you, just like it was for this older brother. In essence, he said, you owe me. All these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed you, but you've never given me a cow. So he thinks because of that, the father owes him. father owes him something. And he feels like he's got leverage. And, and many of the times we live like that. Our righteousness, our piety, our good deeds, we live as though those our leverage over God. When we do that, God owes us a good life, many blessings, nice things. Functionally, we live like that, to, as if we can earn his goodness, and then we trust in those things to get it. But what we see with the older is, despite all his submission, submission in inverted commas to his father, he's actually in rebellion against him, and actually rebels against his father's authority. Tim Keller stated like this, if, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. 
you are being your own saviour. I'm going to say that again. If, like the older brother, you believe that God should bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration. But he is not your saviour. You are serving as your own saviour. Similarly, if you are basing the strength of your reconciliation to God on your performance, you are functionally actually seeking to save yourself, to earn and deserve God's love by your own merit. Again, that's the whole logic of Romans as well, when you look at it. It says no one will be justified by the law. And lest we think, oh, okay, Mosaic law, we're not into that. The Mosaic law, the scripture says, was the best law that there could ever be. You know, any other law that we could come up with is way below the Mosaic law. But scripture says the Mosaic law will save no one. Your fulfillment, your performance will never save you. It will never, ever save you. You can never come to God and say, look how well I've done. Thanks God, I take 90% of what you're offering and here's my 10% to just seal the deal. It's all or nothing. You, you, have, to, you, you have to submit to Jesus as Savior 100%. And that means departing from any confidence in anything else that you can bring. He alone can save. And that's actually the thing. I mean, none of us might be as heartless as the older brother, but we, all of us can be older brother-ish. There's a part of us that still, sometimes if we feel we've performed badly, we feel we can't come to God. What does that say except for that God's acceptance of us is based on our performance? Jesus is speaking right into that and saying it does not work like that. Submit to my love. Sin is not just breaking rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord and Judge. Just as each of the brothers in the parable sought to displace the authority of the Father in their own lives. Jesus doesn't group the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys, but he has shown that both routes are dedicated to a project of self-salvation. Whether it's by going out and being wild to find yourself and save yourself and discover yourself, or whether it's to stay in the house and do all the right things and thereby earn a place in the Father's house, both are self-salvation. And that is why the gospel is so, the gospel is something else. Gospel doesn't say do a bit of this and a bit of that and that's okay. You know, a lot of things in life are like that. A lot of things in life are middle ground, compromise between this or that, balance, you know. But the gospel is not, it is something else completely. It's an entirely different spirituality. It's not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's not conservatism or liberalism. Nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between the two poles. It is something else altogether. You know, in the early days of the church, it was actually a-religious. You know, in the times of the Romans there, there was plenty of religious behavior in the culture. Sacrifices to gods, temples, gatherings, uh, worship, all of that. Christianity was a-religious, if I can put it like that. And what I mean by that is for the people worshipping Artemis or any of the other Roman gods that say to the Christians, where's your temple? Oh, no, we are the temple. God actually lives inside of us. 
that doesn't make sense to the religious mindset. Where are your sacrifices? Oh, no, no, Jesus was the one and final sacrifice. It's no more sacrifices to atone for our sins. Doesn't make sense to the religious mindset. So much of the essence of true Christianity is just not like anything we would call religion. So, in summary, the both sons are wrong, but both sons are loved. And I love this. Oh, I remember a few years back reading the parable of the woman who's found in adultery, and Jesus says to them, the Pharisees want to stone her because she's been found in sin. And he says, okay, well, let the sinless one throw the first stone. Then it's just awkward silence, and the guys, drips and drabs, walk away. But I just remembered that time, something coming through about Jesus' compassion towards the Pharisees. He has some very strong words with the Pharisees, but his heart yearns for them as much as it yearns for the tax collectors and sinners. When we find ourselves to be Pharisaical and older brotherish and earning our way, and Jesus doesn't dismiss us, but he appeals with us. When we want to be outside and we have a problem with younger, young believers and people coming to faith in Christ so simply, we think, yes, sir, you guys haven't even worked. You guys haven't even prayed. You haven't even come to intercession. And we, we resent God pouring out his love on, young, on younger brothers. God doesn't kick us out. He, he comes outside and he says, come on. My love for you is the same. Why, why would you push it away? Why do you want to push it away? So one of the ways we push it away is by trusting in our own goodness. But the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. And there's a, there's a surrender there. There's a submission. There's a, I don't know, I like to think, we often think of that in terms of lordship, surrender and submission, and yes. But at the same time, in Jesus as Savior, there's a submission in saying, okay, Lord, I actually really don't trust in any of my own works. I actually really don't trust in any of my righteousness. Please save me. And then you're right there. You're right there. Jesus pours out his grace on you. But it's often harder for the older brother to see that he needs grace. So Jesus redefines sin. Very contrary to the pharisaical understanding of sin, which is actually every human being's default understanding of sin. He also redefines lostness. So the younger one was lost and was found. He was in the house. That made him unlost, if you will. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So he remained lost. And something in this parable, we start to see uh, characterizations, maybe signs of an older brother spirit. And again, if you feel like a big fat Pharisee at the end of this, it's okay. That's the point of the word going to work in your heart. But also know, as I've just mentioned, the compassion and the tenderness that Jesus has to us when we struggle with that. Signs of an older brother spirit. One, loosely summarized as an inability to handle suffering. We alluded to it earlier when you believe that God owes you a good life. But when you don't get the good life, what is your response? This older brother was angry and he refused to go in. When life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful, sad, but you are deeply angry and bitter. God owes you a good life and a smooth road after all, for all you've done for him. Something bad happens to someone with an older brother heart. Things can go a couple of ways, but here are two main ones. 
if the older brother was actually confident of his performance. Yes, Lord, I've been to every intercession. I've been to, I've paid for missions. Yes, I've even witnessed. I've even evangelized. I've prayed for people. Uh, I haven't sinned in that old way for many years, God. Um, I, I showed some kindness to this person over there. If you have a good confidence in your in your works and something bad happens, you will get resentful. You'll get angry with God. And that's sometimes a good indicator. And maybe it's sometimes why God allows suffering. It's because it illuminates a lot of things in our hearts. When we suffer, things don't go away, we become angry. You can be sure it's because if it might reveal to you that you were banking on your own performance to get a good life out of God. It doesn't work like that. The other thing that can happen is maybe you've been a bad performer. Maybe you haven't performed well. Then something bad happens. You automatically assume, oh, it's because I wasn't living right in this or that area. You make that link. That suffering, uh, not living, not performing well equals suffering. So I must just try harder. And I must, and you hate yourself, you despise yourself, and you loathe your own weakness. So that's one of the signs is an inability to handle suffering and you, you can build up a lot of resentment. And when people's lives go well, you resent it not because of their prosperity but because of your own efforts to control your life through your performance and all its outcomes. The other thing that can happen if you have a, a, this older brother spirit is a strong sense of superiority. We see that in the older brother saying, I've been here all these years and I've never disobeyed you but this son of yours squandered the property. Maybe let me just add there, in a very practical sense, we saw that the father divided up the property. The younger said, I want your stuff. Last week we said, asking for the father's inheritance before the father's dead is same, it's kind of like saying, I wish, I wish you were dead. Like, I really want that stuff. Can't you just give it to me now? He wasn't happy in his father's house. He wanted the father's stuff. That's now the younger brother. Amazingly, the father actually gives it to him. He doesn't force him to be there. Younger brother gets a third, and typically, uh, traditionally, the older brother would have got two-thirds. So that's how it was shared up. Older brother got his two-thirds, and the younger brother got his third. So it's that third of the inheritance that the brother's actually wasted. It's like, imagine if you're in a business with your brother or sister, and one of them just just takes some of the money and just, just pulls it out. Goes to Mavericks, goes to wherever. Cruises around, and it's just depletes everything that was actually meant for all of you. <clears throat> the son makes this comparison, the older brother. And that's often the main way, that competitive comparison is often the main way in which older brothers achieve a sense of their own significance. We saw that too in the parable of the two people that go up to pray. The Pharisee says, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I fast, uh, I give tithes. What else is my good stuff, Lord? But it's a lot, Lord. You know, my good stuff is actually quite a lot. And I really just enjoy that we can talk now because I'm definitely not like that guy. That guy is a terrible sinner. I mean, that guy cheats on his wife, Lord. Did you know? Did you know that he cheated on his wife? I'm glad you accept me, Lord. I'm thankful for all that I've done to make this relationship work. Jesus says, oh man. He says, who do you think was justified before God? The other guy said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He beat his breast and he pleaded with the Lord for the Lord's mercy. Jesus says that guy went home justified. Right? Justified 
in Romans, that becomes a very prominent term. We talk about justification, i.e. being made right with God. The spirit of that man who came in brokenness and humility to God, asking for his mercy, received it and was justified. That Pharisee, though he thought he was talking to God, was actually talking to himself. He, was, he couldn't have been further from God. That righteous record was their separation. But when you have that competitive thing, it will make you hostile to others who aren't the same. And out of that sort of spirit come many things where you believe that somehow you are better because of your particular doctrine. And in religious circles, it's, it's, it's all the more toxic when you think that we are, we, are the gods, we are the God's true church. It's actually only for God to know. The scripture says the Lord knows those who are his. But when we have an older brother comparison and a superiority about how we do things, we step into that place of judge and say, okay, well, the people who don't do it like that, God's obviously not with them. And then sometimes it can come out in church, you directly oppose them and you're very hostile to them, but you believe you, you're just fighting the enemies of God. <clears throat> so you have hostility and a very tough time forgiving others. It is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to them. The older brother's sin and antipathy antipathy to God is hidden deep beneath layers of self-control and moral behavior and he has no trouble feeling very superior to his younger brother sign number three a joyless fear-based compliance all these years I have been slaving for you says the older brother now in our duty is part of life let me just say that there's always duty and commitment. There's always a time in a good relationship where you're going to do stuff that you don't feel like doing. Okay? To live according to your feelings is to live in tyranny. If you're going to not do something just because I don't feel like this, or it's like immaturity. Okay? So maturity means a sense of commitment which involves duty. But it's different for the older brother. It's, you see in the older brother's heart, it's all the way down. It's just duty towards the father. There's no joy in actually just being around the Father, joy in pleasing the Father. He's just got um, a legalism. Scripture talks about doing things according to the letter of the law, and, and Pharisaical people will do that. They'll do things to the letter of the law. And the older brother types may be good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves for the love of the people or for the love of God. In that sense, they're not really, you may be feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, being, visiting widows and orphans in their distress. But if you're doing it out of drudgery and to give yourself a good standing, you're not actually clothing the hungry or feeding the poor, you're just doing it for yourself. And this is a good one. <clears throat> this is a powerful one. Another sign of an older brother heart is a lack of assurance of the father's love. And that comes out when the older brother says, you never threw me a party. As long as you are trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure that you've actually been good enough for him. You simply aren't sure that God loves and delights in you. What are some of the signs of this lack of assurance? One is when life goes wrong or your prayers aren't answered, you wonder if it's because you aren't living right in this or that area. 
Secondly, criticism from others doesn't just hurt your feelings, it actually devastates you. Because your sense of God's love is abstract and has little real power in your heart and life. You need the approval of others. Thirdly, you might feel irresolvable guilt. Your conscience can torment you for a long time, even after repenting. And you're never sure if you've repented deeply enough. Fourthly, you can have a dry prayer life. You might be diligent in prayer, but there's no wonder or intimacy or delight in the conversations with God. The older brother type may be disciplined in prayer, but his prayers are wholly taken up by the recitement of his needs. There's no spontaneous, joyful praise. In fact, many elder brothers, for all their religiosity, don't have much of a private prayer life at all unless things are not going well. In such cases, we may devote ourselves to it a great deal until things get better again, and then we move away. This reveals that the main goal in prayer is to control our environment rather than to delve into an intimate relationship with the God who loves us. So there's a lack of assurance of the Father's love. If sometimes we experience that, and I sometimes experience that, let me just be honest. Sometimes we believe the gospel on one level, but on deeper levels, we don't. We, We actually still put our trust in a lot of other things. It happens to me sometimes you think, "Ah, God's not going to hear my prayer now. I've got to work it up. I've got to do at least a couple of good long prayer sessions before I can really get to God. And your conscience can torment you. You've done something wrong, you repent and you ask for forgiveness and then you continue to beat yourself. Da, 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 da. <clears throat> and a dry prayer life. Again, maybe that's sometimes how God allows suffering. It's just to get our attention because when we, when we use God as a, as a vending machine, we just go to Him for, to meet our needs and we walk away. And that dryness of heart is a sign of an older brother's spirit and, of, and separation with God. You aren't actually near to him. So why is Jesus' message so important? Why is this parable so important? And it's because older brothers need to see themselves in this mirror. The way of getting to God by your own merit is just illuminated in this parable. A light is shone. We said last week, the first two parables, Jesus sort of scratching at the hardness of the Pharisees' heart, saying, you love sheep, don't you? You love money, don't you? People, people have value. Then he moves into another thing and he shines a spotlight onto the condition of the Pharisees' hearts. That's why this parable is so important because it's harder for us to see. The younger brother knew that he was alienated, but the older brother did not. The older brothers don't go to God to beg for healing from their condition. They just see nothing wrong with their condition, which can be fatal. It was the case of the Pharisees. But the younger brothers also need to see this condition of the older brothers because much sibling fighting happens in the church. Many people have left church hurt by older brother types who've used their relationship with that brother to beat them. You beat people with your religious self-righteousness. You are broken yourself with that Pharisee heart. You are broken yourself, but you have done damage. And many younger brothers gone out of church, out of anything, wanting anything to do with Christianity. But at the same time, if you're on that spectrum, you can be a Pharisee about Pharisees. You can be 
as condescending towards those condescending people, you can be just like them actually. So Jesus gives us both these brothers to get a full picture of the gospel. Sometimes this anger and the superiority of older brothers in a church setting, all growing out of insecurity, fear and inner emptiness can create a huge body of guilt-ridden, fear-ridden, spiritually blind people. Older brothers hitting younger brothers, younger brothers cursing older brothers and fleeing. Everybody knows that the Christian gospel calls us away from the lawless life of the younger brother, but few of us realize that it actually condemns the older brother's moralistic approach to earning God's favor. And if you were a younger brother type who came to God, you will always face that temptation to go back to that way. If you're an older brother, always did the things right and then experienced the grace of God, there will be a temptation to go back to that way. And it's something I said earlier, you can be older brotherish. None of us are maybe as toxic as the older one, but it's, we still entertain that, that slow poison, as the commentators talk about the Springboks hard defense, that slow poison. It just wears you down. If you have a little bit of this older brotherness in your heart, you might not notice it, but five years later, you're like, you just can't relate to God anymore because you've allowed certain elements of this older brother spirit to, to grow and to form you, to form your relationship with God. So how do we escape? We need to respond to God's initiating love. In both cases, the father's looking, watching, waiting for the younger brother to come back. He sees him, he runs. Younger brother accepts it. Older brother's outside, the father again initiates love towards him. The older brother rejects it. We need to respond to his initiating love. We can be doing, we can even be living like Jesus. You know, we can have the Jesus method for evangelism or for healing or for any of these things. But if we're doing all of those things to give ourselves a sense of confidence before God, a good standing, God loves me because I do X, Y, Z. Can you say that you're really knowing Jesus? Can you say that, if you, and if you're doing that without a heart like his for those people, can you say that we're really knowing him? Jesus has got compassion He's got love. Jesus does all of these things because of a genuine affection for all these people. But sometimes we do those outcomes and we think, yes, okay, cool, at least Jesus is fine with me now. I've I've, I've seen widows and orphans in their distress tick. God will love me. God will take me to heaven. It doesn't work like that. When I say we need to submit to God's initiating love, it's almost like being broken in by his love. There are a few horse people in the audience yeah. but what I mean by that is you know when you go before you could ride a wild horse you had to break it in okay somehow they caught wild horses I don't know how they caught them in the first place but when they wanted to turn it the cowboys back in the day um, even now turn it into a horse that you could use that you could ride it had to be broken in that horse was brought into submission um, many techniques I don't know if you guys remember the horse whisperer that's also an old classic but anyway the long and the short is that wildness, that impulse to run away and, and run away and do has to be broken in. And I believe for many of us, that impulse to earn God's love, you actually have to be broken in by the love of Jesus. You actually have to allow him to say, and you actually have to believe him when he says, that will not earn my love. My love is free for you. Here is my love for you. It takes humility to actually accept that. 
it takes a soberness about your own nature to actually accept that. But sometimes we think it's noble to add to the salvation of Jesus. Yes, Lord, your love is great. Let's make it better with what I've got. We think it's noble, we think it's great, but it's, it's not. Jesus says, I save you completely or not at all. Receive my love. And so our repentance then is not only from our wrong, but also the reasons we've ever done anything right. The wrong reasons we've had for doing the right thing is also part of repentance, coming to God. When you recognize your desire to be your own Savior and Lord, whether by self-fulfillment or your moral goodness, when you recognize that you have this desire to be your own Savior, then you begin to understand the gospel. You need to allow Jesus, the love of Jesus, to break you in. So I'm almost done, but, but the last thing I'll say here is um, what's also seen in this brother is there's a hint at our true older brother. Now what do I mean by that? In scripture we saw that Cain was actually the keeper of Abel, his younger brother. He murdered him. God said, where is him? He says, am I my brother's keeper? God says, yes, you are. We see that in this parable, the older brother, I mean, could he have gone out to look for his younger brother? Could he have had compassion on his younger brother? How, how would we have liked an older brother to respond? The fact is, in those, those two examples, older brothers didn't. They just rejected them. But scripture actually talks about Jesus as our brother. And Jesus is our keeper. I'm just going to read for us quickly from Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 10. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now, Jesus and the one he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus' salvation of us, he actually puts us in a, like a brother-sister relationship with him. He is the older brother, did what the older brother should have done. Carrying on, it says... Um, we also know that the son did not come to help angels, but he came to help descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, we, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through the suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. The reinstatement of the younger brother actually cost the other brother. So the reinstatement of the younger means he's now actually an heir again, but there's only two-thirds of the inheritance left, so now it has to be split again. So he can get a third, and the older brother actually loses out. That's why it's partly why he's so angry. Forgiveness, when you give it, it's always free to the one receiving it. right? If, if, if there's a condition on the forgiveness, it's not forgiveness. It's earning. But the one who forgives, there's always a cost involved. When you forgive someone, in a way it's at your own expense, right? The reinstatement of the younger was at the older brother's expense. And the older brother resented it. But Jesus pays that cost freely. Jesus is our older brother who spent everything he had to bring us back into the Father's love.
we will never stop being younger brothers or older brothers until we acknowledge our need, rest by faith, and gaze in wonder at the work of our true elder brother, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I think that's, that's it. Maybe if we can have the band up and just spend a little bit of time in worship and respond to God. Sometimes when we read scripture, we think, when it says the flesh, we think um, lust. We think all the bad things that the flesh can do. We say, oh, the flesh, yeah, the flesh. But the scripture talks about the flesh. It's also the best that the flesh could ever do. The best that you could ever do by your own strength is the flesh. So when scripture talks talks to us about putting off the flesh, it's not only all the bad stuff, it's, it's trying come to God with the best that the flesh can muster, the best that you can do, best fleshly attainments that you can create. And we cannot change through mere willpower, through learning the word, biblical principles and trying to carry them out. We cannot achieve spiritual fruit by the power of the flesh. And the thing is we have to remind ourselves of this continually in our lives. We have to feed on the gospel. And what's more, the reality of the Holy Spirit in us gives us a sure hope. Put aside vain confidence in the flesh, confidence in Christ in me, actually bearing fruit for the Father. So we can stand and we're going to worship a bit and then I think let's just worship together for a while and then yeah, if you if you want to respond to God in prayer with someone else, yeah, we are there are people here to pray with you, but do take time to respond to God. Um, I'd be very surprised if none of us had some part of older brotherness in our hearts. Um, if you didn't, you're rocking it. I would like to learn from you. Um, but yeah, let's take some time to respond to God. Let's stand and worship.